Well, good morning, church. We've been on this, uh, this journey together uh, as the new CFCNB in this season, and we've been looking at the Word of God. You know, some, some pastors I know, and there's no right way or best way, but I know some pastors who have their whole sermons planned out like a year in advance, who know through the whole year. And, and we here, we put a lot of effort and time and, and study and preparation, and we are prayerful. We'll listen to the Spirit. But, you know, as God takes us week by week sort of on this journey, I love when the Holy Spirit shows up and He guides us, and we are responsive to His promptings in terms of what we're going through as a local body, as this family of God. And I know in uh, Jamie's preaching and Sam's preaching and teaching as well, we've just seen the same theme And so we've looked at the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and lately we've looked at what it means to live as the people of God. And so the last week or two we looked at discipleship, and last week we said what that looks like is being centered on the Word, being submitted to the Spirit, and being committed to the community. So being connected relationally to the local church. And I've continued to hear wonderful testimonies um, from the community groups If you're a part of a community group, you know what I'm talking about. And if you're not, I would encourage you, uh, come January, we're going to have a few weeks of sign-ups again. And February, we're going to start up another round of those groups. And so whether you're part of a group and you want to continue or you've never been part of one, I strongly encourage you. The New Testament was written. There were groups of churches, small groups of people throughout the area that were gathering together centered on Christ and his word and his spirit And you will grow more in that smaller group and community. You will mature and grow uh, more than in any other thing in your life. And so I would strongly encourage you to do that. So our mission here is just to be and make disciples of Christ. It's the Great Commission. We don't need another mission statement other than the one that Jesus gave us. And our vision, or how we fulfill the mission, is that we love God, we love others, and we reach the world. And so everything we talk about Everything we teach about, uh, all that we learn is toward that end. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about kindness. Kindness. Related not just to the way we treat each other here in the church, but all people. About living like Christ, not just with each other, but living like Christ with everyone. It's about witnessing to others. Last week, we talked about sharing our faith and how we're called to do that. And so this one, I want to explore kindness, and the title of the message is Be Kind, period. You notice the period. There's no condition. When I sent the tech team the notes, I said, make sure when you put the title up, the period is there. Be kind. I told my wife I was going to preach on kindness, and she looked at me and she said, that's going to be tough for you, huh? (laughs) Wait, wait. Then she laughed and said she was only kidding, but I think maybe she was just being kind. I don't know. (laughs) Seriously, though, let's ask the Lord to prepare our hearts for this message this morning, that he would do what he does, amen? So, Lord, we come into this place with open hearts this morning, some with broken hearts this morning. And so, Father, we trust that you'll meet us. We pray that you have your way, that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, spirits to receive. Lord, transform us with your truth and give us your strength and boldness to live it out daily. Have your way. Continue to have your way in and through each of us here in this church. We love you. May our lives bring you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So what is kindness? Well, we know it's a fruit of the Spirit, right? Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So we know that God expects it in our lives. And we know that our kindness is the result of his having shown kindness to us. 1 John 4, verse 20 and 21 says, For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Ephesians 4, 32, Paul writes, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. And I've actually heard Christians say, but those verses only apply to other Christians. And that we're called to be kind to others in the church. And so while it's true that these particular verses are speaking to believers, I'm going to clarify to you the broader teaching of Christ. Because it's sad to me that too often Christians come up with excuses for not being kind. There's quite a few scriptures we're going to look at this morning. There's a lot of material and it's important. And so the first is Matthew 25, verse 31 through 46. If you have your Bible, you can open it there. Matthew chapter 25, I'm going to begin in in verse 31. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison to go visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters, you did for me. And he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devils and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you, you did not look after me. And they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Now let me just say at the beginning here, being kind is not what saves you. Jesus' teaching here pertains to salvation, but the actions are the result of salvation. Jesus is by no means making a theological statement about salvation by acts of kindness. We are not saved by good works. We are saved through faith in Christ. But faith always bears fruit. Faith always shows. 
James 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. See, the one who has Christ will display the character of Christ, and that's kindness. It's a simple message. It's repeated throughout Scripture. An authentic disciple will be known by their fruit. Matthew 7, 16, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Jesus is saying that when you show kindness, you're serving Christ. Believers of Christ will have the life of Christ in them. They will bear increasingly the fruit of the Spirit, and it will show in their kindness. Kindness is God's love in action. It reveals a life that's transformed by Christ. It reveals the love of God in our hearts, and it reveals the character of Christ in our lives. The acts that I do do not make me kind. It's the other way around. I do kind acts because I've been made new, by Christ. It's a result of Christ transforming me. Jesus says, when I see kindness, I know that my, they're my sheep, and they're my sheep because they're just like me. Their heart breaks for what my heart breaks for. The things they desire are my desires. See, too often I think Christians are afraid that kindness means approval or agreement. Rick Warren said this, Our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. The second is that to love somebody means you agree with everything they believe or they do, and both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise conviction to be compassionate. See, sometimes I think that if we're kind to people who are lost, meaning they don't know Christ, or we're kind to people who are living in sin if they do know Christ, that that means we're enabling or approving. But those aren't the same things. Jesus knew Judas would betray him, and yet he offered him a seat at his table and a place by his side. I saw somebody post recently, biblical kindness is saying, I disagree with you politically, ideologically, and religiously, but you still have a place on my table because I love you. So let's go to the Bible because as we know, it doesn't really matter what I think. It doesn't really matter what you think. It matters what the word of God says, amen? So Jesus teaches us in Matthew 22, verse 36, on the greatest commandment, very familiar, And he teaches in response to a question, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Verse 36. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Love the Lord your God with your your intellect, your emotion, your affection, your action, with everything you are, with every fiber of your being, love God. And then it says, this is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. The, in, the, in the original language, it's really saying, or as an outflow of it. It's one continuous thought. Love your neighbor as yourself. The loving your neighbor as yourself comes only as a result of putting God first. And then Jesus makes a pretty radical statement when he says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. 
He's saying everything that was ever written in the law, everything that the law was ever distilled down to, everything the prophets ever taught, everything you know about Christianity and being a Christian hinges on this thought. Loving God so fully that as an overflow of that, you love others. In Luke 10, 25, we read this. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus answered, said, you answered correctly, do this and you will leave. You will live, sorry. He, he should have left. He did leave, but. Verse 29 says, but he wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? I love that phrase because so often, you know, we read the Bible and it's easy to judge, but you know how many Christians that when you say be nice, they want to qualify that? Or they want to go, but but wait a minute, I mean, be nice to everybody? But wait a minute, let let me justify myself. And so he said, well, who is my neighbor? I mean, who do I have to be nice to? I mean, surely this doesn't include everybody, Jesus. And so in response to that, Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. The story of the Good Samaritan is in response to a Pharisee trying to justify himself. How many times have you met people who claim to know God, who try to justify being unkind, and I'm not talking about about outside the church. I'm talking about within the church. Now, we could say perhaps, well, that might be a bit neutral. I mean, yes, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. And so, yes, culturally, they were at odds. Uh, The man who fell in the ditch was a Jew, and the man who rescued him was a Samaritan. But they didn't have any personal animosity. I mean, there wasn't really any, you know, there was just sort of that. Maybe that was a little more neutral. So just in case we need further clarification, Jesus takes it one step further. Matthew 5, verse 43. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than the others? Do not even pagans do that? And then he says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Jesus' statement about our perfection is in relation to love and really the highest expression of love, loving your enemy. Loving somebody, not who's slightly annoying, but who is actively opposed to everything you stand for who is actively working against you in every area. And Jesus is saying, if you can get to the place where you internalize the Father's love so much that you can pray for and love that individual, you will be children of your Father in heaven. So I think Jesus has been pretty clear by now when he says be kind, when he says express love, that he means to everybody. 
Just in case we were unclear about that, church. 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16, we read last week. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. And always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. I think some people's Bibles just stop there. And then it doesn't say anything else. But the Bible I have, it says, but do this, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed by their slander. I love apologetics. Apologetics is just a defense of the Christian faith. As a matter of fact, the reason I'm going to do my doctoral program where I am is because they have a specific focus on theology and apologetics. And I love watching debates. But sometimes, even though the guys that are debating are right, they're jerks. Can I say that? Is that okay? I mean, sometimes maybe they're right, but they're just not very nice. They're arrogant, and they're condescending, and they're angry. And they lose something with that posture. One of my favorite apologists is a guy by the name of John Lennox. He's an Oxford mathematician. And he's sort of like this gentle grandfatherly type. He doesn't get flustered. He doesn't get angry. He's very kind and gentle. And he lets the weight of his arguments do their job. But you get the, the, real, you get the real sense that he cares about the people he's talking to. Sometimes we're more concerned with being right than righteous, with winning an argument than winning a soul. See, God's kind. Right from the beginning, we see God's kindness. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned and hid from God, when they realized they were naked and in shame, we know that the result of sin was our disconnection from God. But right away, we see an identity crisis. Right away, we see the sense of, there is something profoundly wrong with me. I am ashamed. I need to hide. What does God do in response to their sin? What does God do in response to their disobedience? This justice that kicked out of the garden, but this grace and kindness. It says the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. This was a gracious act of kindness. It was significant because it was the first slaughter of an animal which points to the ultimate slaughter of the Lamb of God would cover our sin. So kindness, like the other fruit of the Spirit, is an attribute of God. And so the reason we're called to practice kindness is because he practices kindness on us. Titus 3, verse 4 and 5, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Luke 6, verse 35, but love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting anything and without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your heavenly father is merciful. See, this is how we show our love and response to the love he's shown us, by our love for people expressed through acts of kindness. See, we need to be reminded, because we are not born naturally kind-hearted, right? 
We grow to become kind. Kindness needs to be taught and caught in practice. But as beautiful as all these little babies are, this morning we had a couple of them running around, and the little angels, and if you're a parent, you know they look like angels, but you don't have to teach them to be bad. You don't have to train them to be selfish. If you think you put two toys down and one kid's there and one kid's there, they're going to look and go, oh, look, there's two of us, there's two toys. No, one of them is going to go, mine. Because their default setting is self-centeredness. You have to teach them against that. Even as little and cute and beautiful as they are, you see the effect of sin. You see the effect of self-centeredness. Kindness is not natural. It must be taught. It must be practiced. Sociologist Robert Wuthnow did a study of young volunteers who are involved in serving their community, and he found out that performing acts of caring is more learned than innate. In other words, yes, there are some people naturally inclined to be nicer, but nobody's naturally inclined to serve. And I don't care who you are and how much you love Jesus and how long you've served, sometimes you just don't want to do it. And what do you do then? When there are people who still need to be served. See, we're called to be kind even when it's inconvenient. And so I read this quote, kindness will take action. It will take a risk. It will pay the price. It will put others first. It'll finish what it starts. And then it'll give all the glory to God. See, some of us are kind and everybody's looking, right? Everybody come look at me. I'm about to be kind. Hey, look at me with my selfie. Look at me. I'm being kind. When Jesus returns, he's not going to commend us for the knowledge we've acquired. But what notoriety we may claim but by the kindness we've shown. I remember reading a book years ago, probably 20 years ago, about this, this guy, Donald Miller, wrote the book. He became a Christian in the 70s and had long hair, and he went to work at this Christian camp. And he showed up there, and, you know, it kind of felt, you know, a little judged kind of right away. But, you know, he's kind of trying to make relationships and just, you know, ignoring it. And he's really just trying to plug in, get to know people. And he just felt distance and ostracized. And the, the Christian camp was right near this like hippie commune on the side of it. And they were doing hippie things. And so, you know, obviously there were a lot of things that clearly weren't, were not, they weren't living for God. They were lost. They didn't know God. But he noticed that the sense of community, the sense of taking care of one another, the sense of inviting everybody in. And he felt guilty because he liked the hippies more than he liked the Christians. And then it occurred to him that the highest ethic expressed that what he was liking, that what he is attracted to, were attributes of Christ. And again, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Being nice and kind is not the same thing as being saved. And you have to know the truth, but that truth should produce fruit if it's to be authentic. And he realized that the people, though hippies and didn't know Jesus, were reflecting the love and character of Christ. And that was what he was attracted to, that Jesus was here and these groups were down there. See, Christians don't just believe the right truth. It's not just about what you know, right? It's about who you know. The right truth is revealed in the word of God, but also in the person of Christ. 
And as believers, we are empowered by the Spirit to live that truth out. Paul says we're called to become living epistles. How many people have been turned away from God or from the church because of the way they've been treated by somebody who said they were a Christian but behaved not at all like Christ? I've said before, and I say this and people get upset and they try to like defend it. But I've said before, if you ask somebody outside of the church, somebody who hasn't been exposed maybe to the right Christians or to healthy Christians, and you say, describe for me a Christian, they're going to describe a Pharisee to you. They're not going to describe Jesus to you. And we can get all defensive. We can go, I'm not like that. Well, and maybe they don't know the church. That's fine. You can do that. But that's been their experience. And you know what? That was my experience. And I don't think I'm the only one. So we're going to be the church. See, kindness isn't just a state of mind or a mood. It's an action. And until it becomes a natural part of who you are, it needs to be an intentional action, which means we have to make efforts to cultivate kindness. Which means that until kind actions flow naturally from your heart, you just simply have to practice kindness. And I don't just mean the kindness as you go, like helping an old lady cross the street, rescuing a cat from a tree, sort of good deeds as you go along. Hey, you know what I did today? That's sort of kindless light, right? Doesn't really get in your way. Doesn't really change your schedule, your lifestyle. It doesn't really cost you anything. But sometimes kindness doesn't work out that way. See, we saw in the story of the Good Samaritan Helping the Jew fallen in the ditch, robbed, was going to cost the Samaritan time and money. There was no promise of getting reimbursed. He had to follow up to make sure the man was okay. And knowing the injured man was a Jew and that Jews hated Samaritans, they weren't going to have a parade. He wasn't going to get a thank you card. You see, sometimes kindness puts us in contact with people we'd really rather prefer not to have contact with. Sometimes it causes us to go out of our way and wrecks our schedule. Sometimes it's out-of-pocket expenses that we're never going to recover. And most of the time it involves following up to make sure the job's complete. Years ago, I don't know how many years ago now, time gets away from me, 25 years maybe, I worked at Shaw's. And there was a guy there, his real name wasn't Joe, I'm going to call him Joe. Everybody there called him Dirty Joe. He didn't bathe. He didn't look particularly clean. He was always disheveled. And some people talked about him behind his back, but everybody pretty much avoided him. And one day, we were teenagers in the parking lot doing what teenagers in the parking lot do, hanging out, and we saw a car, one car, only one car in the whole parking lot. And it looked like the interior light was on, the windows were foggy, and, you know, we kind of rolled up and, realized that this was Joe sleeping in his car. And so we went in probably to buy cigarettes into the, into the grocery store, and one of the girls that was there, she said, we said, you know, Joe's out there sleeping in his car, and she said, he worked today. It was his birthday. We thought, what is up with that? So then we got the idea, you know what, we're going to, we're going to give him a birthday cake, right? I mean, we're just teenage kids. We didn't really put a lot of thought into this. We had nothing else to do. 
So I remember between all of us, we had 11 bucks, three of us, me and my two friends together, we had 11 bucks. That was a lot of money. That was all we had. That was our money for the night. And we got it all together and we bought a gallon of milk. We bought some donuts. We bought a birthday cake. And we were going to steal the candles. I'm just being honest. We didn't have any money. We are going to steal the birthday candles. Like, Lord, this is, you know. We went to the, ca- the, when we went to the, the cashier, I'm pretty sure she said, I'll, I'll cover the candles. You guys don't have to steal the candles. We told her about what we're doing. Yeah, he's been, he's been living in his car for about a week now. You know why? So we rolled up, we kind of knocked in the window, and you could tell he was kind of hesitant and didn't want to let us in. And we showed him the cake, and he still was kind of like, what? And he lets us in, and there's, you know, four of us now squished into this car that the dude was living in. It was, didn't smell good, and there was stuff everywhere. And, and we lit the candles. We began to sing happy birthday, and he started to cry, and we started to cry. And he said, you know, this is the best birthday I've ever had. And we kind of talked to him about, you know, what, what's your deal? And his mother had a new boyfriend, and the boyfriend was molesting his little sister. And he confronted the family, and they kicked him out. That's why he was living in his car. Now, back then, you know, now I cry all the time. But back then, I was, you know, a little bit tougher. Jamie would say not, but man. And I'll tell you, after we left him the rest of that night, I think for an hour we didn't say a thing. That little act of kindness had a profound effect on on us and him. Going out of our way, just not even really intentional. It cost us what little bit we had. But we showed kindness. And it created a moment none of us will forget. But kindness can be intrusive. Kindness can be uncomfortable. But the reason God first practiced kindness to us is that so his mercy would lead us to repentance. What that means is that God has now forgiven us through Christ. He's shown us mercy and grace that in, we, in return we might show that to others. And when we fail to show kindness... It is an affront to a holy God who has shown us just that. Paul writes Romans 2 verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness? That word contempt means hatred. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. Not what he has thought or said. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth, there will be wrath and anger. Bernice wasn't in the early service, but I said wherever she is, I heard a big ouch. Bernice is always preaching. She said, ouch. See, kindness is serious business. It's serious because of how God showed kindness to us. And it's serious because what it cost him to show that kindness to us. We didn't deserve it. 
He provided out of the goodness of his heart. In light of the great kindness he did to us, he doesn't take lightly when we are unkind to others. Paul said, you practice kindness, you reap immortality. You take his kindness lightly by neglecting to be kind to others, you're subject to his wrath. And again, don't mistake me. If you, you know, we've said before that people, people all the time, they'll say, uh, St. Francis said, preach the gospel wherever you go, and if necessary, use words. He didn't say that. That's incorrect. He said, when you're going to preach, make sure you're walking as preaching. In other words, it's a both hand. It's, it is necessary that people hear, hearing the word of God, right? That's what Paul says. By hearing the word of Christ. But boy, it helps to build up that relational capital, doesn't it? It helps when people know that you really love them when you've earned the right to speak into their life because they know that you care deeply about them. And one more very important thing about kindness, it might not have anything to do with just helping strangers. See, kindness every day might have a whole lot to do with those people who are closest to you, with those people you know really well. See, practicing forgiveness and forbearance, that's practicing kindness. And that word forbearance, it's an interesting word. It means to control one's patience. It means not to give way to anger. It means to tolerate. See, this kind of kindness, it doesn't mess with your schedule or your finances. It messes with your attitude and your, and your rights and your mood. Listen to your spouse and your kids and your parents and the guy at work who always has something to say. And don't listen to answer back. And don't listen to show what a great martyr you are by listening. Just listen. You know, as a pastor, I've learned sometimes people, they don't necessarily want the answer. They just want somebody to listen and say, you know, I get it. I don't know what that's like. For a long time, early on, it's like, you know, I'm going to fix it. You come to me, I'm going to fix the problem. Plus, you know, I'm a guy. That's what we do. Like, what's the problem? I'll fix it. Sometimes people don't want you to fix it. They just want you to be there with them. God will fix it. They just don't want to walk alone. When a careless word offends you, let it roll off your back like water off a duck, which is a true thing, by the way. Some of you know I have three ducks, and you don't realize that expression until you see water roll off a duck's back. They're in the water, they jump down, they, they splash all around, they come up and they're dry, and you're like, that's where that comes from. It's pretty cool to see. Doesn't affect them. Yes, they're in the water. Yes, the negativity, they're right in there, but it's, you know. When your kid messes up because they're a kid, you don't have to always get angry or overreact. You can put your arm around them and pray with them and show love and be kind. See, be aware of this, that those you're around every day are the ones to whom your little unkindnesses have an effect, a deep effect And they're also the ones who will be most profoundly affected by your kindness. Viktor Frankl was a Vienna Jew. He was interned by the Germans for more than three years. Moved from one concentration camp to the other until finally he spent time in Auschwitz. He shared how their bodies had wasted away on the daily fare of ten ten and a half ounces of bread and one and three quarter pints of thin gruel. 
They had to sleep on bare boards, uh, tiers that were seven feet wide. There were nine men to a tier, and they shared two blankets. Every day at 3 a.m., three whistles would blow to wake them up for work. And one morning as they marched out to lay railroad ties and the frozen ground miles from their camp, the accompanied guards kept shouting and driving them with the butts of their rifles. Anyone with sore feet had to be supported by his neighbor's arm. The man next to Frankel, hiding his mouth behind his upturned collar, whispered, if our wives could see us now, I hope they're better off in their camps and I hope they don't know what's happening to us. Frankel writes, that brought thoughts of my own wife to my mind. And as we stumbled on for miles, slipping on icy spots, supporting each other time and again, dragging one another upward and onward, nothing was said, but we both knew each was thinking of his wife. Occasionally I looked at the sky where the stars were fading And the pink light of the morning was beginning to spread behind a dark bank of clouds. But my mind clung to my wife's image, imagining it with an uncanny acuteness. And I heard her answering me, and I saw her smile and her encouraging look. And a thought transfixed me. And for the first time in my life, I saw the truth as it is set into song by so many poets, that is proclaimed as the final wisdom by so many thinkers, the truth that love is the ultimate and highest goal to which any man can aspire. And then I grasped the meaning of the greatest secret that human poetry and human thought and belief ever have to impart. The salvation of man is through love and in love. I believe that Jesus, while he was being tortured, saw my face and saw your face. We were on his mind because of his great love for us. And so how dare we, how dare we not love the unlovable when such kindness was shown to us when we were unlovable? You know, the Christian life isn't just difficult. It's impossible. To love your enemies, even your enemies, is the result of God having loved you first, shown profoundly by Christ on the cross, that in turn, despite what happens around us, Our love can be ever increasing by his power, by his spirit, that we're called to love others. So until next week, as Paul writes in Ephesians, be kind to one another, be tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as Christ God forgave you. Amen.